Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord. I'm John Fusco. And I'm Eric Lures. It's February 22nd, 2018, and on this week's show, Why Cinema Lenses Exist, The Tech That's Revolutionizing the Film Industry, Black Panther's Astonishing Opening Weekend and What It Means for Indie Filmmakers, and as always, news you can use about new gear, upcoming deadlines, indie film releases, and Ask No Film School. Hello out there. Happy spring and welcome to this week's show coming at you from downtown Brooklyn, New York, home of No Film School. It's not spring yet at all. What? I think no. it's another month, right? It's, yeah, we, we're having one nice day, <laughs> and you're jumping the gun here. I'm feeling optimistic, but as usual, John Fusco is raining on my parade. Yeah. Come I'm on, just, Twitter. I'm just Send trying me some to, love. you know, don't go out there wearing a t-shirt tomorrow True. or the next day, because it's going to be cold if you're on the East Coast. As always, we're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy making films, like how you might have missed John's birthday. I was going to give him a whole big happy birthday thing, but now I'm just annoyed, so I'm skipping it. Okay, that's fine. Is it really going to get cold? Yeah, tomorrow? it's February. Yeah. It's still no, February. No, no, no. Just, <laughs> this is the it, the same right. thing happened last year. We had yeah. one really nice day like on February 20th. It was my birthday, and then it got cold again. So I'm just trying to, you know, like... Keep Protect. it real. Keeping it real with John Fusco. Stay healthy. Mm. It's going to be a new segment. No shorts. It did snow like three days ago. Yeah. Anywho, I think I'm the only one on this crew who saw Black Panther this past weekend, but I certainly wasn't alone. Aside from being the most indie-heavy superhero movie ever, with both its director and DP firmly rooted in the indie world, Ryan Coogler's film broke no fewer than six records in its opening weekend. We already knew that Fandango had reported it as having the highest ticket pre-sales for any superhero film, although the company didn't share a specific number. But the film also had the highest IMAX ticket pre-sales for any Marvel film. Since then, it's gone on to achieve the following stats. Highest rated superhero film on Rotten Tomatoes, beating out last year's favorite Wonder Woman, which currently has a score of 92% to Black Panther's 97%. Best opening day gross for a single superhero film, as opposed to one featuring a group like the Avengers. Black Panther raked in 75.8 million bucks on Friday, which also makes it the eighth biggest opening day of all time. Looking at the entire weekend, it was just off the charts and way higher than predictions. My favorite headline on the matter so far was from Flavorwire, which simply reported, Holy shit, Black Panther made so much money. How much? Well, after the complete four-day weekend, we had a four-day weekend here in the States because Monday was President's Day, Black Panther made about $235 million domestically and $404 million worldwide. It is the biggest February opening in history, and by the way, it hasn't even opened in big film markets like China yet. To put these numbers in perspective, in just four days, Marvel's Black Panther earned more than competitor DC's Justice League did during its entire domestic run. It was also by far the biggest opening film for an African-American director. According to Screen Rant, the previous record holder was F. Gary Gray's The Fate of the Furious, which opened to $98 million at the domestic box office in April 2017. So why do all these stats matter to indie filmmakers? One, it's smashing Hollywood myths as quickly as it's smashing sales records. Jeff Bach, a senior analyst at the entertainment research firm Exhibitor Relations, put it plainly in the New York Times, saying, quote, One by one, these unwritten Hollywood rules about what audiences supposedly will and will not support are falling by the wayside. I think about it like a wall crumbling. In terms of Black Panther, no studio can again say, oh, black movies don't travel, overseas interest will be minimal. End quote. I should also mention that if you haven't seen the film, it's not only black characters that take front and center, it's black female characters. Yeah, the Panther himself is a dude, but the main warriors are women, as is the inventor behind Wakanda's world-saving technology. So I have to think that the success of both Wonder Woman and Black Panther on the blockbuster side and Get Out and Lady Bird on the indie side mark incremental changes in the industry that will benefit us as indie filmmakers as audiences make it more and more clear that new voices are welcome. Secondly, it's relevant to us because many indie filmmakers, though not all, of course, are interested in exploring social issues in our work, and Black Panther proves strongly that currently pressing issues can be addressed not only outside of the documentary world, but actually in highly entertaining mainstream films. Black Panther doesn't shy away from confronting race and colonialism head-on, for example. This may turn off some viewers, but Marvel, Disney, and the filmmaking team took that risk, and it sure seems to be paying off. 
Some social movements are even capitalizing on this. For example, the Movement for Black Lives has been setting up voter registration events at Black Panther screenings around the U.S. ahead of the 2018 midterm elections. If you're interested in setting up one of your own using their platform, text PANTHER to 91990. As far as what I thought of the movie, well, there's a lot to say because it falls 100% in my wheelhouse on so many levels. But overall, I'll point out just a couple things. First of all, there was one significant plot hole that bothered me, but otherwise I was so insanely impressed and entertained and just marveling, no pun intended, at the beauty of the production design and the cinematography and the level of care and detail that the team put into it. It feels like a lot of the other super movies have kind of just been like throwaways or afterthoughts lately, but this was not the case here. Even though the story is obviously fictional, it was clear that so much research was put into depicting an Africa that felt true to life, if not a bit of a mishmash of different African cultures. Even the language spoken by the fictional people of Wakanda was the real language of Isishosa, one of South Africa's 11 official languages that's spoken by about 15% of the population, and all the cast had to learn it and have dialect coaches and everything. I think that this movie will have massive appeal even if you're not into comic book or superhero movies, like Eric Lewer's, and it's worth seeing even for the cultural touchstone that it has already become. Would love to hear your thoughts, so tweet at me, boo. I think you really just convinced some people to go see the movie Black Panther, Liz. That's uh, really admirable of you. I feel, wait, why are you <laughs> kidding? You're kidding. Well, it's just, you know, it just raked in $404 million over the weekend. That's all I'm saying. People are going to go see it. It doesn't need my help. <laughs> yeah. yeah but, on the fence. But if you're <laughs> yeah. listening to Indie Film Weekly, you might be like one of those indie film snobs who's like, I don't go see those movies. But this one, you know, I'm just saying. It's worth a try. So speaking of one of those people, uh, <laughs> so I've seen Iron Man 1 and 2, and now I have 17 more films to go, right, until I can get to Black Panther? Or does it matter if I'm not familiar with that universe at all? Because I think Black Panther was already in a Captain America movie two years ago, right? And then he'll be in the Avengers one next month? Or how do I find my way into it? It's a good question, actually. In this one in particular, there's like no tie to others. So you can definitely see it cold. And I think it is cool, though, that with the success that it has had, that it will probably be number one at the box office for a number of weeks, up to and maybe even including when Disney's next film, uh, made by an African-American director, A Wrinkle in Time, comes out on March the 9th from Ava DuVernay. So it's kind of an interesting time in that they're positioned so close to each other in about three or four weeks. And Uh, she was originally going to direct Black Panther. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. She uh, was the one who, like, really pushed hard for Coogler to get it after she dropped out of the picture for creative reasons, I think, creative differences. With only a week and a half to go before the 90th Academy Awards ceremony takes place on Sunday, March 4th, the film award season continues to be in full swing. It literally keeps swinging and swinging and <laughs> swinging. There, there are so many uh, award ceremonies um, for another 10 days or so. The BAFTAs, which is the British Academy of Film and Television Arts Awards, took place over the weekend in London's Royal Albert Hall. And the big winner of the evening was three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, which on this particular night could very much have been called, bear with me here, five awards outside of the United States. The joke did not work when I thought it through, and it will tweet at me, boo, to let me know if it worked for you. (laughs) Uh, The film from the UK's own Martin McDonough was the recipient of Best Film, Outstanding British Film, due to McDonough's ties, Original Screenplay, Leading Actress for Frances McDormand, and Best Supporting Actor for Sam Rockwell. Other big winners include Guillermo del Toro, deemed Best Director for The Shape of Water, Gary Oldman as leading actor for Darkest Hour, Alison Janney as supporting actress for I, Tanya. Adapted screenplay went to Call Me By Your Name. Best film not in the English language went to Park Chan-wook's The Handmaiden. Uh, best documentary to Raul Peck's I Am Not Your Negro, which I believe was released in the United Kingdom this year. And outstanding debut by a British writer, director, or producer. I like how they kind of have all three roles there. Went to I Am Not a Witch. For writer-director Rungano Nayoni and producer Emily Morgan. After winning, Nayoni said, I was waiting for my category to go so I could go to the toilet. <laughs> it was a real big shock. And let me t- we've all been there, and trust us, we've all been there. So, <laughs> I mean, I haven't won an award like that, but I've definitely waited for something to, maybe a graduation or something that's taken place, and I'm just waiting to finish because of uh, nerves, of course. 
Uh, Roger Deakins also took home a BAFTA award over the weekend for his cinematography on display when he's capturing the world of Blade Runner 2049. And fun fact about Deakins, I just looked this up, he was born in 1949, so if he makes it to 100, he may very well be able to see if his vision of the future came true. In Fun fact. In exact fashion, like Ryan Gosling still has to be walking the streets and et cetera, et cetera, right down to the last point. Uh, but before he gets there, last week, Deakins was also the recipient of an ASC, American Society of Cinematographers, award for the film. The award was his fourth ASC prize. He previously won for The Shawshank Redemption, The Man Who Wasn't There, and Skyfall. In addition, he received a Lifetime Achievement Award in 2011, the year he was being honored for shooting the Coen Brothers remake of True Grit. Much has been made of the fact um, here at No Film School and elsewhere uh, that Deakins is now a 14-time Academy Award nominee and that he's never actually won an Academy Award. He was even nominated for two films in 2007, The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford and No Country for Old Men, which are two very depressing titles but two very super excellent movies. Um, will this be the year he finally wins? I, we think it is. It's hard to predict. I feel like it was going to be his for Skyfall, and then every year it's like your Oscar pool can kind of go either way. Uh, if not, there's most certainly next year when he shoots director John Crowley, who's the filmmaker behind the Saoirse Ronan film Brooklyn's uh, The Goldfinch, starring Nicole Kidman. So who knows? This is probably Deacon's year, but you learn to never say never. Man, this is a tough one because I would never root against Deacon's. I mean... Let's give the guy a damn Oscar already. But I wish it wasn't the first year that there's a female nominated in the same category because I would love to root for Rachel Morrison as well. She did such a beautiful job on Mudbound mm. and Black Panther, as I mentioned. Yeah. So I mentioned it last week, but we're now nearing the end of the Berlin International Film Festival or Berlinale, which I'm never quite sure is pronounced Berlinale or Berlinale. Uh, it's a massive event showing about 400 films per year and selling over 330,000 tickets. Compare that to Sundance, the biggest festival in the U.S., which programs about half as many films. It's an important festival to know about, not just for its sheer size, but because of the concurrent events, which include the European film market, which is one of the top three film markets in the world, plus a co-production market and something called Talents. The Talents program is something you should all know about because it will apply to many of you and to us here. According to the site, it's aimed at film and TV professionals in the first 10 years of their careers. And if you're accepted, you're invited to the festival and to this special section with talks, workshops, and meetings with some of the world's top filmmakers. Then the European film market alone has almost 10,000 film industry participants and over 500 exhibitors from all over the world. So if you're trying to finance or sell a film internationally or want to learn more about co-production or about production incentives offered by different countries, this would be an amazing, albeit likely overwhelming, event to check out. Do you know how people apply to the talent? Is it a program? Or? Yeah, it's a program and you have to apply. Okay. So if you look at the Berlinale website, there's a link to the talents section. And I should say, it's a, you know, I don't know how many people apply, but they accept 250 participants. So you probably have a pretty good chance of uh, getting in if you do apply. There's not a ton of news out of the festival yet, but I will mention that with 100 movies in his filmography and counting, the Berlinale's honorary Golden Bear for Lifetime Achievement was presented on Tuesday to Willem Dafoe. This bodes well for the actor who has twice been nominated for Oscars, but is rumored to win one in a third time's the charm situation for his role in Sean Baker's The Florida Project. We also have a writer on the ground, producer and director Stephen Morse, who's there representing a couple of his own projects, and I will talk about one of his posts from the fest a little later in the show. And contrary to what was said last week, John and I never actually made it to the festival. Um, we got to the airport, our tickets were not there, and uh, we had to stay behind. Yep, it sucked. <laughs> <laughs> but following it from afar has also been very gratifying. That's true. And now for this week's gear news, here's Charles Hain. Hi, Charles. Hey, Liz. Uh, hello from a 70-degree day in Brooklyn. Woohoo! Um, our biggest story this week was actually leaked last week, but now the full official details are out, and they're pretty exciting. The Fujifilm X-H1 is here, and it heralds another like major and popular manufacturer getting into the mirrorless cinema space. So... Along with the details that leaked out last week, we now know the price is definitely going to be about $500 less than the A7 or the GH5S, so it's a more affordable option. But of course, with Fuji, you're going with their X mount. You're not going to be the MFT mount of the GH5 or the uh, Alpha mount for the Sony lenses, so it's yet another lens mount to contend with. But if you're already in X mount, it can be a great option. And speaking of the X mount, along with 
the new camera. Fuji's going to release the MK zooms in X-mount for the X-H1. So we reviewed these zooms about a year ago. We love them. They're super lightweight. They're par focal. They are not super fast. They only open to a 2.9, but that's actually okay. It's not the end of the world because sensors are getting so fast. Um, and they're really creamy and beautiful. But they're only good for mirrorless. So before they were only available in E-mount for Sony, like the FS7. And now that there's a camera that makes sense for them, Fuji's officially releasing them in X-mount. Now, we saw these in trade shows in X-mount, so we knew this was coming. But it's nice that they're officially released. And with the package of like an MK zoom and an X-H1, you're going to have a really nice cinema kit. Now... What we wonder is if this also flags that there's going to be like a five or six thousand dollar like full fledged Fujifilm cinema camera coming down the pike sometime in the next year, which would be really interesting. Uh, but even for now, the XH1 is going to have internal F log, 200 megabit per second 4K, HD to 150. So there's a lot of great stuff in there, all in that little sub two thousand dollar package um, to be very excited about. Now, how does this compete? Do you think with the with the GH5 and like the closest competitors. So it's clearly meant to be a competitor to them. It is definitely meant to be a competitor to them. One of the big ways it's competing is on price. It is $500 cheaper. And another big way it's competing is lens quality. Fujifilm has always been known for really great glass. Uh, still shooters love those X-mount zooms and X-mount still lenses. And a lot of still shooters already have them and they're already really sort of cinema friendly. And then the next thing that they're really competing with is in-camera image stabilization. So that's something that they sacrificed in the GH5S um, and that you do have in the A7S, but it's not anything to write home about, but they're really featuring in the advertising for the X-H1. It's really like a marquee feature for them. And if you think about it, a lot of times, you know, on a, when you're taking out the $6,000 camera, you might run a Ronin 2. When you're out there with like the $2,000 camera that you own, you might not gimbal it. You might just be wandering around with it handheld. A lot of the videos... Like, I own a gimbal, and a lot of the videos that I end up making with the X-T2, we just do handheld because it's easier and faster, and we want to move quickly, and we want to just get people talking to camera. So having in-camera image stabilization that's really sophisticated and works well with the glass they've designed, I think is, like, the marquee thing that's going to make it stand out. It's probably not going to be the low-light monster that the A7S is or the GH5S is, but I think if you can live without a little bit of that low-light, if you're if you're comfortable shooting, you know, at 2500 ISO instead of 25000 ISO, I think you're going to be in a really great position with this camera and it's something to strongly consider. Also, internal log recording is great. We'll have to do a shootout. Ooh, that sounds fun. Yeah. Up next, Samsung has announced a 30.72 terabyte SSD drive, um, which is crazy. It's especially crazy because it's basically like a two and a half inch drive that has a bunch of other SSDs like stuffed inside it, allowing it by using them in sort of a RAID capacity to have some stunning speeds. So for read and write, it reads at 2100 megabits per second and it writes at 1700 megabits per second, which is super fast. So filmmakers tend to forget that hard drive speed is actually really important. So, like, you're trying to edit your film, and your edit's going really slowly, and you can't figure out why, and so you get, like, a bigger graphics card, or you get a better processor, or you buy a newer computer, and all of that's super important. But once that all is maxed out, if you're still pulling from, like, a 150 uh, megabit read-write uh, hard disk drive, and you're trying to pull 8K files off of that, the drive cannot literally read them fast enough. So these SSD drives that are like 10 to 20 times faster than that are going to be huge for sort of future video workflows as we start to see higher and higher resolution footage. Now, SSDs are really expensive, but they can often be worth it with the speed they bring. Most of us are probably not going to be buying these 30 terabyte SSDs since when they hit the market, they'll probably cost more than a car. But... No way. Right now, a one terabyte SSD is what, like 300 bucks? So a 30 terabyte SSD will be something like eight grand probably. Dang. My car cost 1800 bucks. So <laughs> like, I don't, you know, I mean, not. A, it's not going to be more than a nice car. It'll but It'll cost more than a used car. It'll cost more than a filmmaker's car. Dang. Yeah. Um, they're, whew, they're going to burn the pocket up. But if you're a post house, if you're doing lots of 8K raw workflows, something to consider. 
Last up. So, Chinese manufacturing has been moving on all sorts of areas. There's the Kinefinity camera, there's all sorts of lights from Aperture and Felix and others. But we haven't seen a lot of movement from Chinese manufacturers in cinema lenses. Last year, we did meet a Taiwanese company, Bokalux, that was going to come out with a line of Cine Primes, which was exciting, but now they're gone. Uh, they had like the most depressing website announcement of their end. So if anybody knows like the inside info of why Bocalux is no more, hit us up. Let us know on Twitter. Um, and in the meantime, we haven't really had a lot of activity in the cinema lens space. And so we were excited to see that Mikey or Mikay, uh, a mainland Chinese company that's already making still photo lenses and battery grips and flashes, um, has leaked that they're going to start making cine primes. Now, these are much smaller cine primes. They're like mirrorless cine primes. They're more like the Vedras than the Bocaluxes, which were really like Takina competitors. Um, but it's super exciting to have anybody coming into the cine prime space. And it's super exciting to see this coming from a new area for manufacturing these lenses. And since their still lenses are regularly under 100 a lens... Even if it's two or three times that, even if it's 300 a lens, if you're getting mirrorless uh, lenses that have hard focus rings, declicked apertures, are ready for cine use, I think that could be really exciting and a nice disruptor in the industry. So look out as uh, Mike comes out with these lenses sometime this spring. We're excited to see him. Cool. So we've got an Ask No Film School question for you, too. So Samir Ali wrote to the No Film School boards asking about how he's using a black magic cinema camera with a Canon lens. And he says, whenever I mark the focus point, next time it changes. He's shooting in MF mode and he says, I don't know what's wrong. I've tried with different lenses and get the same. What do you have to say, Charles? Samir, that right there is the reason that cinema lenses exist at all. So basically, for the longest time, still lenses, you could mark focus on the lens and like repeat the move, and it was same for still lenses or filmmaking lenses. You would move the little mark on the thing, and it would go to five feet, and it would be perfect. The barrel was great. However, as autofocus got more sophisticated, it became necessary for lens designers to give that up in still lenses. So if you've noticed with your Canon lens barrels, they probably spin infinitely. If you spin them, they'll keep going and going and going, even though in that little window, the little focus distance thing no longer changes. That's because there's no longer a direct one-to-one relationship between the lens barrel and the focus distance. The lens barrel is more like an input device that tells you that you want to move it a little bit, but it's not designed to give you that repeatable relationship you get out of a cinema zoom. So, when you're working with still photo lenses, it is almost impossible to do repeated focus moves. This is actually why a lot of people, when they're pulling focus on a still photo lens, you get like another little monitor set up, like a little small HD or something, and you're watching the monitor as you move the ring, not the lens. Because even if you put marks on the lens, as you move it back and forth, it's going to subtly drift out of sync with where you want it to be. This is not a flaw in the Canon lens design. This is the Canon lens doing exactly what it was designed to do to work with still photo autofocus systems, which is what it was designed to do. So uh, one thing to do to make this easier is to try and avoid ever going near the end of your focus uh, distance. So you try and avoid ever turning the barrel all the way past infinity or past close focus. That'll make your focus more repeatable. But then the better solution is to try and get your hands on some cinema zooms or cinema primes, cinema lenses, where the barrel has a one-to-one relationship with the focus. And then beyond that, really try and get an external monitor set up with that black magic so that the operator has an image, but also the focus puller has an image so that they can be looking just as much at the image and it being pulled as they are at the lens barrel. Because if you're working on Canon lenses that were designed for still photo autofocus use, you're never going to be able to pull focus with them accurately. It's just not something it's possible for them to do. Even if you nail it perfectly every time, it just keeps drifting. That sounds really frustrating. I'm glad oh, you cleared that up. Oh, it drives people insane. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, Samir, good luck. Tell us what you end up doing. And thanks so much, Charles. Oh, my pleasure. Oh, and while, while we're at it, I'll say one more thing about still photo lenses. They're usually not parfocal, which means if you are using like a Canon zoom and you zoom in and get focus and zoom out, the focus will drift, which is not a flaw. It's part of their design. You have to pay more money for a parfocal lens. 
but that also drives people nuts. If you're using like Canon still photo zooms and you're trying to do like in-camera zooms, you zoom in, you get focus, you zoom out, it'll drift focus-wise. Gah. Yes. <laughs> All right, everybody, see you next week when it's probably snowing again in Brooklyn. <laughs> All right, moving on to some independent films coming your way this week. Now on VOD, you can uh, check out Like Me, which is another entry in the fast-growing social media thriller genre. It follows a young woman who sets out on a crime spree that she broadcasts on social media, and it had its premiere at South by Southwest last year, where it was nominated for the Grand Jury Prize for Narrative Features. The film is the debut for director Robert Mockler and features Addison Timlin as its lead. And Max Winter sat down with Mockler to discuss his film in an interview titled How, Like Me, Used Psychedelic Imagery and the Words of Guillermo del Toro to Explore Loneliness, which you can now read up on the site. And coming to Netflix on February 23rd is a film called Mute. This is probably my most anticipated Netflix release of the year, and I think anyone who saw Duncan Jones' sci-fi flick Moon would probably agree. Jones is, of course, the son of legendary all-around person David Bowie, whose career started off strong with Moon and Source Code before an ill-fated entry in Warcraft, but let's be honest, he probably did that for the moolah. Mute is a follow-up of sorts to Moon, in that it's a spiritual sequel. We imagine it takes place in the same future, the same world. Sam Rockwell, who played Moon's protagonist, is even rumored to make a cameo. It's about a mute bartender who goes up against the city's gangsters in an effort to find out what happened to his missing partner. Alexander Skarsgård plays that bartender, and the film also stars Paul Rudd and Justin Theroux. Wow, what a cast. Yeah, I can't wait to see it. It's got some uh, Blade Runner aesthetics of its own. Have you seen the other new um, Netflix sci-fi show, Altered Carbon? No, I haven't. I've actually been watching Dark, which uh, is amazing. Mm. Yeah. Also on Netflix? Also on Netflix. Okay. It's uh, Speaking of Germany, it's Netflix's first German-funded... No, the first show they funded for Germans? <laughs> 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 Something along those lines? Um, it's basically a much more cerebral um, and better Stranger Things. I'll just say that right now. So. Ooh. Well, I've been watching Altered Carbon, and it's um, probably a better version of the uh, remake of Ghost, Ghost in the, the Shell. Shell. Yeah. Oh, wow. It kind of has like a similar premise to Ghost in the Shell, but it's way better. I'm a little hooked. Anyway, Tell Them We Are Rising is now streaming for free until March 22nd on the PBS Independent Lens website. This is the latest from celebrated documentarian Stanley Nelson, who's won every major award in broadcasting. In 2016 alone, he was honored with a Lifetime Peabody Award, a Lifetime Emmy Award, and a Lifetime Achievement Award from the International Documentary Association. Uh, This film was also co-directed and co-produced by Marco Williams. So Tell Them We Are Rising, which premiered at Sundance last year, is the middle film of Nelson's trilogy on black American history. The first was The Black Panther's Vanguard of the Revolution, which I believe was the most watched independent lens show of all time. This one is the first film ever to focus on the 150-year history of the historically black colleges and universities, or HBCUs, and the impact they've had on American history, culture, and national identity. Our writer, Scout Tafoya, interviewed Nelson, and I thought Nelson had a really interesting take on making historical stories feel modern. One way he's done this is to counter conventional wisdom and not use a narrator. He said, quote, we're trying to tell a complete story without a narrator. It can draw the audience in in a very different way. There's a sense of self-discovery, that they're discovering so much of the information themselves. There's nobody telling them the information. Hot take. Thanks, Stanley Nelson. And coming to theaters on February 23rd is Annihilation. Annihilation? I never know how to like say that word, but I think you it's annihilation. The first time. Annihilation. Is it, it, is it? Yeah, annihilation. Yeah. Great. I'm smart. I'm so excited for this movie that when I was writing the script for this podcast, I literally had to pause and take a second to say under my breath, I'm so excited for this movie. Oh, oh. I thought you said that because you were sitting across you from me. You heard me say it, right? Yeah, no, yeah. I, I thought was that like, was some email oh I sent God. you. Oh, man. So okay. I thought when you took out the cigarette that something was weird. Nope. <laughs> Annihilation is Alex Garland's follow-up to his excellent debut, Ex Machina, and like Ex Machina, it delves into some hard psychological science fiction, which is absolutely 100% my jam. The movie is based on the first novel of Jeff Vandermeer's best-selling Southern Reach trilogy, and the series follows several different groups of scientists as they investigate an area known as Area X, a place cordoned off from society by a giant bubble-like thing where mysterious things happen. 
If you're interested in reading the novel before going to see the movie, I highly recommend it. I bought it last week, and I'm flying through it. It's only about 180 pages, and it moves really quickly. I've read, like, maybe 120 pages in four days, and I've got, like, 60 pages left, so I'll be able to see it or finish it before I see the movie, which is great. This also might be a good idea because the film has already gained a reputation for being somewhat unfathomable. Uh, Due to test screenings, Paramount made the decision in December of last year to only release the film theatrically in the U.S., Canada, and China. They then sold the international rights to Netflix, who will start streaming the film three weeks after Friday's release. So, if you live in Europe and want to see the movie in theaters, it's a pretty good bet that you're going to be shit out of luck. It's easy to see part of the rationale behind this decision just by looking at Ex Mahina, which grossed $25.4 million domestically and $11.4 million internationally, this with a Rotten Tomatoes score of 94%. Annihilation will potentially be seen by a much larger audience overseas as a fresh Netflix film with far less spending on P&A. Press and advertising. As for Annihilation, it currently sits at a 100% on Rotten Tomatoes, and that score doesn't seem likely to slide much further down. It stars Natalie Portman, Jennifer Jason Leigh, Tessa Thompson, and Oscar Isaac. And is it more kind of heady sci-fi? Because I enjoy that kind of monster slasher aspect of it, that it looks, at least what the promotional material seems to be hinting at, but how is it kind of a balance between those two elements? Yeah, I mean, I think it's like more of a cerebral sort of horror movie, so probably like a thriller, and there's a lot of tension without the monster being revealed, I imagine. I don't know, I'm only like halfway through the book, but uh, that's how the book is, so like, it feels like something is going to happen very soon, and it's feels like something is going to happen the entire way through the book. It kind of just picks up right when they're inside the bubble and it doesn't give you much explanation. Uh, and it's it's pretty intense. So it's it's like a hard sci-fi cerebral horror movie. Yeah, it looks good. I, even the score, just like Ex Machina, feels like it's going to be really yeah. awesome on its own. Yeah, I'm really excited. <laughs> and I feel like Natalie Portman takes on like heady roles. Well, maybe not in Thor, but... <clears throat> a yeah. lot of her, you know, roles are a little more sort of intelligent than some of the other actresses that do these blockbuster type films. Well, this movie also featured, I mean, the book too, it's it's all about four women. So it's uh, got Boring. some strong female leads <laughs> to it. Cool. And up next, we have our grant and contest deadlines. Up first is the Film Fund with a deadline for February 26th. Back for its second year, this initiative will award up to $10,000 to a filmmaker with the best one-sentence idea for a short film. I'm going to submit a few of these. Its founder started out as an independent filmmaker not based in Los Angeles or New York who found himself struggling to raise financing and find resources for his own film projects. It appeared to him that many contests were dominated by those who already had industry experience or access to better resources and crew. The film fund is designed to level the funding field, as no advantage is given to entrants based on industry experience. Effective storytellers should be able to succinctly convey the vision they have for their projects, and that is the basis of the contest. February 28th is the deadline for the Creative Capital Grant. Creative Capital is an impact-driven arts organization that supports adventurous artists across the country through funding, counsel, and career development services. They provide each funded project with up to $50,000 in direct funding and career development services valued at $45,000 for a total commitment of up to $95,000 per project. This is a good one to apply to if you have an experimental film, a kind of video art, or documentary. And now on to some upcoming festival deadlines. The Tacoma Film Festival has a deadline on February 26th. This film festival takes place in Tacoma, Washington from October 4th to the 11th. It's the early bird deadline. It's been named one of the 50 film festivals worth the entry fee from 2014 to 2017. They gave special attention to films from the Pacific Northwest. So if you're from that region, this would be a good one to apply to. And it's got cash prizes of up to $1,000. The DC Shorts Film Festival has a deadline on February 28th. This takes place in Washington, D.C. from September 7th to the 16th. This is also the early bird deadline. It was recently named the coolest short film festival by Movie Maker Magazine. And uh, it's the largest short film event on the East Coast of the United States. In 2017, they screened 170 films from 30 countries in 17 unique showcases that played over 11 days to a total audience of 9,000 people. 
They also hosted a table read of six screenplays and awarded the winner a prize of $2,000. All entrants receive a report with the review committee's comments on it, which is really nice to have. And finally, on March 1st, we have the deadline for the Hot Springs Documentary Film Festival, which takes place in Hot Springs National Park, Arkansas, from October 19th to October 27th. Sounds kind of fun, like those festivals that you just want to attend because you want to visit the place. Um, This will be the early bird deadline for this Academy Award qualifying festival, and the winning short film in the Doc Short Film Competition is the one that's eligible for the Oscars. It's apparently the oldest nonfiction film festival in North America, which I can't verify, but it is what they told us. And awards are given in several documentary categories. So it is that time. It is the time for weekly words of wisdom. 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 Uh, I mentioned earlier that we have a man on the ground at Berlin, and my weekly words of wisdom come from his first post, which uh, scratches the surface of a space that we will be watching closely here at No Film School. The is, artic- that, is that Eric? The man on the ground in Berlin? No, no, it wasn't me. No, he was the man no. on the ground at the airport. Yeah, no, I, oh. I I partied too hard on my way over there, so I just stayed on the ground throughout. <laughs> Literally, I, I thought ne- you said you'd never get on the plane. Oh, right, right. No, sorry, sorry. Um, that's... I, I got on a different plane. I went to Hot Springs. No, I, I didn't make it to Berlin. It was a weird layover. I was just hanging out at the airport, and I saw him, at, and so I just like thought he'd be going. But uh, Sometimes on the weekends, I hang out by the baggage claims. Did yeah. you guys interview anyone there? Or? No, I was uh, scanning it for chicks, actually. LaGuardia is a hot spot. <laughs> LaGuardia, for Wi-Fi. Of yeah. all places. Great Wi-Fi. Better than Newark, maybe? I don't know how it would rank our local airports. I don't know. Newark's pretty good, too. Yeah. For chicks. <laughs> for chicks. Stay away from JFK. That's all I got to say. And JFK part. is the most international. If you like the international flavor of chicks, you want to hang out at JFK. I prefer peeps. <laughs> <laughs> Buffalo Wild Wings is also a great place to scan for chicks. Yeah, like dead chicks who <laughs> become wings. Yeah. Buffalo Wild Wings, LaGuardia, <laughs> wow. and Newark. We're learning a lot about John's preferences. That's true. I did it for my birthday. What do you think I was doing? We skipped over that, but I was there alone. (laughs) (laughs) But you went home with lots of chicken wings? Yeah. No. Yeah, I went home alone. (laughs) But you know, in order order to go out for these meals, you probably need to pay for them. And so, great segue. How does commerce and finance, I'm struggling here. uh, (laughs) Thanks, Eric. Factor into this. Back on track. Thank you. So- The space that we will be watching closely here at No Film School is not LaGuardia Airport. It's actually the blockchain. And the post that Stephen wrote is called Why the Blockchain Could Fundamentally Change How Business is Done in the Film Industry. Bum-bum, big title. Now, I hinted in our Berlin All segment about just how much business gets done at this festival and market, so the fact that they highlighted this topic in a session definitely lends it credibility. Stevens Post highlights a project called Film Chain, which is trying to use blockchain technology to make film financing and production a lot less shady. Without going into too much detail, blockchain is essentially the tech that underlies cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. In the case of Film Chain, it would be used for production revenue collection and allocation through smart contracts that are triggered automatically. So the example Stephen gives is, say you're a screenwriter based in America and your contract says you'll get paid $10,000 on the first day of production of a film produced and set in China. Once that first day of production happens, your $10,000 will automatically be triggered and you will get paid. So contracts could be set up such that, for example, three individuals confirming that production started on a specific day would be all that's necessary to send you an instant payment halfway around the world as opposed to the way things work now, where the contracts are not smart and automated, and you might be waiting a really long time to get paid if your producers and financiers are shady. So this type of tech really has the potential to revolutionize the whole industry in everything from payments to digital rights management to distribution. So my words of wisdom, particularly to producers and financiers, is to start learning about how it all works and how it might impact your future productions. Every time we bring up cryptocurrency on this podcast i'm like i'm gonna know what cryptocurrency is the next time and it never it never happens i still have no idea what the hell is going on you can start with our post i could my mind just goes blank though every time it comes up i'm just like but you're so good at math i know Mm. i think it is even its biggest advantage too is that you're not really necessarily visualizing 
it, right? So cryptocurrency, as you mentioned, Bitcoin is a form of cryptocurrency, but it's not the only kind. So I'm just trying to like picture that sometimes in my head, and it's you know, a I just, challenge. I hear the word cryptocurrency, and my mind just like explodes into like white light for yeah. about five to ten seconds. I feel like that's what happens every time I say anything to you, though. That's true. Almost, almost yeah. every time. Well, it's funny that this even that we're even talking about this because I was perusing the um, schedule for South by Southwest today, which you know has so many um, panels and sessions as we've talked about lots of times on the podcast before, and um, they're usually on the cutting edge of things. And it looks like there are several sessions this year about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency and and the blockchain and how it all works. So maybe I'll maybe I'll send each of us to a different one, and we can kind of put our heads together and start to understand this thing that is clearly you know, not going away. I'm waiting for someone to make a VR project about cryptocurrency. And I think that's really, you know. The bubble will burst (laughs) by that point. (laughs) For my words of wisdom, in a guest post up this week from filmmaker Jordan Riggs about the creation of his recently released web series, Brian, which is about a Brooklyn-based comedian fresh to the dating scene, Riggs broke down the steps to getting a project off the ground with the extremely limited resources you may have. One piece of advice was to ask for help and not beat yourself up or feel bad about it. I'm that guy who struggles with the peanut butter top, Rig says, which I read it twice. It confused me, but I, I got it as he went on. I, was, I mean, I get it. He's trying to, I mean. He's trying to get it open, but he doesn't want to ask. I, I guess anyone for help. I would use like it. the pasta jar, like. Mm. Uh, I don't know if he's Italian, though. Right. <laughs> yeah, but like peanut butter, is peanut butter hard to open? I feel like it's just like a uh, for this guy. This guy, yeah. I mean, I could see you got to twist it. You know, it's it's like you got to maybe struggle a little bit. I guess I guess so. I don't know. I I think it's one of the easier jars to open. (laughs) But that may be his point, though, because it. Well, let's see. Uh, I'm the guy that struggles with the peanut butter top specifically. (laughs) Rig says, Uh, "I'll survey the kitchen full of able-bodied humans and return to my struggle in silence. Don't be like me and my peanut butter when making your film." There are people all around you. Some of them are obvious asks, others are not so obvious, and some are just plain strangers. But as a wide-eyed, bushy-tailed, budding artist, it's important that you open yourself up and ask for help. You'll be surprised who has a connection to a 1982 Mustang, or who knows the owner of that famous restaurant that would be the perfect backdrop for the final kiss. Be in the business of championing your work and asking for help. People love to believe in someone who believes in themselves. Social media is an amazing tool, but so are face-to-face interactions. Be open to coffee dates and favor exchanges, and if there's any inkling that someone can offer help, reach out to them and treat them. You never know what will happen when those floodgates open. Um, You know, it is very tough to ask for help from friends and, and loved ones, perhaps due to a fear of criticism or the fear of appearing like you're desperate and not in control of your own desired long-suffering art. Um, you kind of want to give off this impression of being in control at all times, so that can be a little tough to admit otherwise. Uh, but it's always good to kind of get it out of your own head, suck it up, and use the help and items uh, offered to you. Many will be willing to help you out, and it doesn't make you any less in control by acknowledging those benefits your friends provide and taking them up on it. That's really great advice. I think I'm going to start bringing peanut butter to Newark, like jars of peanut butter to Newark <laughs> and JF, or not JFK, sorry, she's LaGuardia. And dipping your wings in it? No, no, no you got to buy them with no, Bitcoin. I just got to, I'm going <laughs> to start like showing off how easy it is for me to unscrew these peanut butter jars and maybe that'll <laughs> attract. Which way to the gun show and you just like curl your arm around a peanut butter bottle? Yeah. You know what I do actually? This is weird. But you know <laughs> oh, what I good. do? <laughs> sit, settle down everyone. Here we go. <laughs> Weirder than picking up chicks at the Buffalo Wild Wings at yeah, LaGuardia? Maybe. <laughs> I think this is. Uh, <laughs> when I'm when I'm trying to open a uh, a can of pasta sauce because it's hard. I, I'm not one to ask for help, so I actually I have batting gloves, and I put the batting gloves on, oh. and it actually gives me more traction on the pasta jar, and I mean, it's still pretty difficult, <laughs> but uh, it makes it a little bit easier, and I do get it off myself. Wow. So is there something like putting warm warm water over it? Too, yeah, I guess right. That's yeah, very resourceful, John Fusco. Yeah. but also yeah, run it under some hot water. And those are my weekly words of wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> no, these are my weekly words of wisdom. Uh, as a one-time actor, I always talk about the importance of letting your actors have a voice in the process. And as a newly turned director, I am now really interested in how directors ask their actors to vary their performances from take to take. 
So in the podcast we released on Monday titled Piercing, How to Cultivate Tone and Style in Your Film, Christopher Abbott and Nick Pesh cover both of these topics and prove how integral the play between the two are to each other if you want your film to be successful. Take a listen. The edit process was more like a cultivation of the tone, like trying to figure out the exact right vibe of everything, finding the right music, finding the right pacing, finding the right performances. You know, something that we did a lot of was uh, the takes would be varied in like in a lot of we would do just different things in the takes and have a spectrum of like totally go ridiculous, be more normal. And in the edit kind of blending all of those um to to really craft this kind of weird tone um and that was more with the edit process and like the biggest thing was yeah so much of kind of just honing that style and making sure that the style was supporting the performances and the drama and all that is that something that you would recommend filmmakers do in a directing style is kind of go for the varied the like most varied possible performances or styles from take to take or do you think that it's do you think that it gives you more to play with in the end I don't know I think it depends on what kind of director you are you know and what kind of actors you're working with right um I think that something that was awesome about Chris and Mia is that we would talk a lot about the scenes and then we would do them and I would kind of watch the first take and be like sweet that was good that is exactly what we talked about and for me it was always less about like honing the performance to be the exact thing that was in my head um and more about being like well what do you guys like is there anything else you want to do is and and they would have ideas like the best thing would be i would come like i'd be at the monitor call cut come on to set and they would have ideas of what they wanted to do next and and funny bits and and uh, the, I always, yeah, I always like, remember the ice pick do line. One, or just do, what was that? The ice pick line. Like, oh, let me get my ice pick. Yeah. <laughs> you which know? is hilarious. Yeah. But like, we just do, we do a take that was just very, like, again, like back to the physical comedy thing. We, we were like, all right, like once we've kind of felt like we, we've got it, but like, let's just do one that's completely absurd. Yeah. And like real, like a lot of like broad physical comedy. Like when, when Jackie, when Mia's character first gets to the apartment, um, and like I'm making her a drink. I remember like I would literally do takes where I would do that classic like comedic thing where like my hand would be shaking and you hear the glass like hitting hitting the other glass, which is st- stupid. But like, <laughs> but why not? But why yeah. not have it? You know, just and it was f- like I, I I almost knew it wasn't gonna end up in the film, but like it was I was like I but I got to do it. Well, it's those like small details I think within the performances. You yeah. Know, like even if it's not like wildly varied, you can like do those little tiny like gestures that'll make maybe a scene 10 times better yeah and people and like at at least at the first screening like people really um saw all those little things and laughed at them yeah i mean great the what you did with the napkin and when you were first offering her drink i guess that was the the take that you guys went with and and which is all him too that was like like, you know oh well i'm getting fingerprints everywhere and and like you out of focus in the background wiping down (laughs) yeah like try to hide it from she like no yeah she notices too at one point (laughs) So what can like directors do to sort of uh, uh, encourage that in their actors? Like you've worked with a ton of different directors. Um, what's a good way? Because I I think like a lot of first time directors have a problem with like confidence. Yeah, well so, that's 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 the biggest thing I think. Yeah, I think um, because when I think when you're very you know I, I I think obviously hire well I think right if you're a director like hire and not just the actors but you know obviously the people around you, but um uh. Yeah, like uh, being confident as a director to then to give actors, I guess, the freedom, you know, to like try and experiment and then just guide and be and and um, do it as a team and um, not not tre- not be precious about it. And um, and that's, uh, you know, I, I've I've not really had that many experiences where it's not been that, you know, you, well, you're pretty selective with your films. It seems like you have been in some really good films yeah, I've like, been in some clunkers. Yeah. Too. <laughs> Believe me. Yeah, we'll link to that um, in the podcast post for this week, along with all the other articles that we have talked about. So as we wrap up, I want to send out a quick Oscar-related shout-out. I've mentioned our friend Laura Checkaway on the show before, who's nominated for an Academy Award this year for her short doc, Edith and Eddie. Well, some good news. It can be hard to access some of these uh, Oscar-nominated shorts, but this one you can now watch on... Uh, 
for free online at topic.com. It's about America's oldest interracial newlyweds who were married when they were 95 and 96. And as always, we have an interview podcast coming up on Monday. John, what's it going to be? So next Monday's podcast is another one from Sundance, and it's our first from Oakley Anderson Moore. It features a bunch of short film directors who were some of the lucky 69 chosen out of the over 8,000 people who applied to Sundance with their shorts. I haven't listened to it yet, so I can't give you much more details on that, but our short film roundtables are always really entertaining and useful. The two we released last year from Sundance and South by Southwest, respectively, were two of my favorite ever. And they certainly helped me get my own short off the ground. So if you've got a short uh, that you'd like to produce sometime this year, take a listen on Monday. I guarantee it'll be helpful. Awesome. I can't wait. Meanwhile, if you can't wait to talk to us, you can tweet at us on Twitter with tweets. I'm at Liz Film. I'm at Eric Lures. And by the way, no one has tweeted at Eric Lures yet no. since he started and co-hosting the show. I, I so. want to say maybe I started off on the wrong foot by saying don't tweet at me about three or four weeks ago. I, I completely removed that ban. I actually encourage and expect the tweets to start coming in now. Um, so please look me up. Anything at all. It yeah, what do you want people to tweet at yeah, you? Yeah, you know, it doesn't <laughs> have to be. I, I, I will say this. Uh, this Sunday night, I will be participating in annual uh, Oscar trivia competition at Videology in Williamsburg, Ooh. which do it every year with a team. I won last year planning to do it. I'm not planning on winning again. I am going to win again. We're going to win again. Just got to speak with confidence, you know? Uh, <laughs> and so, the, for example, I will be tweeting during that. How about that? So Sunday night join in on the fun, see if we win the Oscar trivia competition again, and I, I will respond to each of you. And um, you know, I love that, live tweeting the Oscar trivia. Li- uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know if I can do it in the rounds because that would oh, be a little right. nefarious. Right, think you were live yeah, cheating. Yeah, yeah, live cheating. Don't live cheat, let me tell you. Uh, too many marriages have ended that way. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but definitely, uh, I-, I will provide you with interesting content if you follow me or tweet at me. So let's start again on the, the right foot. And if you want to follow my exploits at Atlantic Terminal Buffalo uh, Wild Wings, <laughs> I'll be live tweeting those uh, on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, <laughs> Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. Uh, I'm at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. And stay tuned for more stories. Did I already say I was at Liz Film? Maybe I did. But also, yeah, Charles is at Charles Hain. We're all at No Film School and at NoFilmSchool.com. You can read about everything we've talked about on this show and much more about the craft of filmmaking. Also, please look us up uh, on iTunes and subscribe if you haven't yet or whatever your favorite podcasting app is. We also really appreciate those ratings. They help us a bunch. And uh, we look forward to seeing you next Thursday. Thanks a lot. Wakanda forever. Forever.